Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. This morning's sermon text is from Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone, millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy that you showed towards us in the cross that we've been singing about this morning. Uh, God, thank you for bringing us together in worship, the grace that is manifest in that, that we are brought together uh, to be sharpened and molded into the image of your Son. Uh, God, I pray that your Spirit moves mightily amongst us today and throughout this week, that we would uh, be conformed more to look like your Son, that we would walk more in your ways, that we would trust you more, that we would live in faith, that we'd live in belief, and that we would repent of unbelief. Uh, Father, I pray for Mason as he preaches. God, that you would speak through him for your glory and for our good. And I pray that as we take up the offering, uh, that we would generously be stewards of all that you've given us for your glory, realizing that you have given it to us, that we, you've given it to us for your glory and for our good, that it's not ours to keep and ours to hoard, but it is uh, for you. So God, thank you. Thank you for loving us and thank you for your kindness towards us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. My name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor here at Res Ushers. Uh, you guys can go ahead and come forward, but Res Kids, you will uh, not be dismissed yet. Um, you will be in just a moment. Uh, the reason you're not being dismissed yet is because we are doing a uh, baby dedication uh, and, and parent commissioning of sorts. Uh, we've never had a baby dedication at Res, partly because uh, we really didn't have babies for a couple of years. Um, another reason why is it just wasn't really something that was on my radar, and I didn't really know the theological implications of it. It was just kind of something you you did. You, know, you just kind of grew up, and like it was this one Sunday where the babies would come forward, and um, people would hug them. I don't know, and then then there it would be a lot of family there, and it would be this big thing, and so. Um, a lot of churches are, are, are do it, a lot of churches don't, don't do it, um, but we're going to do it, and, and we're going to do it for three reasons. Um, reason one, I want to welcome children as they are, and that's one I think evangelicals, we can really mess up. Welcome children as they are. Second, pray for what our children will become. We get that one right a lot more frequently. Third, I want us to commit before God and one another to partner 
with these families and the discipleship of their kids. So my question, of course, anytime you do a, a, something in a service is just simply, is, is it biblical, right? Is it something the Bible teaches? And my answer would be, um, he wants to get up here quick, man. Is it biblical? I would say uh, sort of, sort of. In the Old Testament, we see precedent for bringing your uh, babies to the temple to be dedicated. In the New Testament, even Jesus himself was brought to the temple by his uh, earthly parents to be dedicated. Um, then how do we get here, right? How do we get here? Here's my three-minute version, and it'll take literally hopefully only three minutes. If you're an historical theology nerd, I know I'm making some very broad strokes, and if you're that interested, we can chat after church because very few other people are that interested. Not long after the New Testament, I would say probably about 150 years or so, the church fathers began baptizing babies as sort of a sign of the covenant. And to them, baptism of a child was akin to the Old Testament circumcision of a child. The circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant in their thinking, and baptism in their thinking was a sign of the New Covenant that they wanted to bestow upon babies when they entered into believing families. Their interpretation of covenants within Scripture led them to these conclusions. And then so for about a thousand years, uh, over a thousand years, the general Catholic practice of the church was to, to baptize babies at their birth as a sign of their being born into a Christian household. But then the reformers come along. Many of the reformers will continue the practice. Guys like Calvin, guys like Luther, and their direct descendants will continue to do so today. But there arose a stream um, from the Reformation of these folks who said, I, I understand what you're doing, and I, I don't think you're a heretic, but I, I don't think that's what baptism is. I think baptism, they would argue, and I would argue with them, is a picture of the gospel. In baptism, right, you are buried with Christ in his death, and you're raised to walk in newness of life. Romans 6 teaches us about how this is a picture of the gospel. I think this is your visible entry into the visible church. And so then if, if you're going to be a believer, if you're going to be someone who has um, entered the new covenant that is a covenant of faith, right, that is a family of faith, then you have to possess faith. And so baptism for, for these people and their descendants, who we will know today as Baptists and many other mainstream evangelicals, will argue that kids are important, but baptism is reserved for those who are conscious followers of Christ. But there arose, even in these streams, a desire to still make abundantly clear that babies and children are loved by God and are a central part of the local church in their own unique way. And it's out of that desire this morning that I want to honor our kids. I want to do more than just pray for the parents. I want to honor our kids and set them apart for God's purposes. We want to join parents in the evangelism and the discipleship of their kids. Their home is their first mission field. I'm going to be preaching a passage from Mark 9 today that I think we need to hear um, but we are almost in Mark 10 as we journey through the book of Mark. And I'm going to read one passage from Mark 10. And so as I read that passage, if you are taking part in the baby dedication uh, parent commissioning this morning, I'll invite you to come on up. So come on up while I read this passage in Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. 
Picture that. All these people, right, who are um, walking up to, uh, to Jesus, bringing um, children to him that he might, might touch them, and the disciples rebuke them. They're, they're bringing kids up, and the disciples are like, stop, stop, stop. These kids are a nuisance. They're annoying. They're ugly. They're smelly. They're these things. Like, don't bring them up. But when Jesus saw it, he was, the text says, indignant. He was indignant that they would stop these little ones from coming to him. Let the children come to me, he said, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This text reminds us that we don't just um, honor kids for what they become, we honor them as they are and as they come to us. We love them in a very real way. They're part of our congregational life. Their cries are not distractions from worship. Their cries are them joining us in worship. And we want to keep that theology as we grow. The text says, though, but whoever does not enter the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. So that means even these kids will will one day continue to grow up and they'll have to consider, am I going to be a follower of Christ or not? And we pray that these children, as they cling to their earthly parents here, here, will cling to their heavenly Father. We pray that they'll see their sin, see God's love for them, and surrender their lives to Him at a young age. We promise to walk with them and point them to this heavenly Father. And we're also going to pray for the most important people in their lives, me and Jason. And so um, we're also going to pray for the most important people in their lives, their parents, when we get them. So we have some gifts um, and a little certificate. Their certificate's worth almost as much as the paper it's printed on, but we want you to know that we got it for you. So Jason, come on, bring some uh, gifts. We have a, a book um, for the parents, and we have uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion for Cedar by John Calvin, a big, big book. No, so we've got these gifts for for each of them. And so let me hold yours up real quick. Um, Give them grace, a parenting book, and then the gospel story Bible, a a book to hopefully help kids see the the words of scripture in their own language. So let's meet our our folks real quick. This is uh, the ubiquitous Cedar Nash Clark. And so we love Cedar dearly. This is the Clark family, Nick and Jack. I can let you guys introduce yourselves. Everyone knows you, but go ahead and say your name and your kid's name just for fun. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thanks for sharing. After church, it's always a game of where's Cedar, yeah. uh, and it's some, I mean, he's, he's, someone's got him. Trust me. <laughs> so, Tommy and Megan, you want to just say your names and your kids' names? That's all you gotta do. I'll call me Jason because this is my wife Megan. You're Rose. She was, and, and she was born on my birthday. Yes. <laughs> she was the first baby here. She's a little, little miffed it took so long to do this for her. There's some real reason why doing this. Thank you. Thank you. And Brie, your kids and you? Um, I'm Brie. This is Brandon. Cool. Cool. Man, we're so thankful for all these folks here. So thinking about those things, remember, um, welcoming the children as they are, praying for what they'll become, and then just praying for the parents. 
Now, if you would join me in prayer, we're going to pray for, for those three things. And uh, uh, if you're a Christian here, if you're not, we are super glad you're here. But I invite you to uh, just stretch your hand out um, in the pattern of sort of um, laying hands on someone, in the pattern of sort of commissioning them off as missionaries. I invite you to, to stretch your hands out towards uh, the families. And um, I'll put my hand on Cedar. And then uh, until he cries, and I'll put it on Nick. Um, and then, uh, yeah, until he cries, I'll put it on Nick. And so uh, I'll pray, and then uh, after that, we will um, we'll send them back to their seats, and, and I'll preach my second sermon. So, so let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for, for these kids and for these families that are represented here. We know um, that you created them. Uh, we know that you love them, and we know that you've provided a way to heal them of their, their deepest uh, problem, and that is sin. And so, Lord, I pray for, um, for all of these kids, God, for uh, their families. Lord, I pray, Lord, we praise you for, um, for loving them as they are. We pray that they'll become uh, men and women who love you more than anything else. We pray they'll become men and women who um, give their lives away in service to your kingdom. We pray that will be men, they will be men and women who take seriously your commands to, to love others and to make disciples of all nations. And we pray for these parents, God. We know that um, glorious days and hard days have come and that glorious days and hard days lie ahead. And I pray, Father, in these moments that the church will take seriously the um, call to discipleship, that the church will take seriously the call to community, that the older saints will, will come alongside the younger saints and say, hey, I've been here. I know what this looks like. Let me share this with you, Father. I pray that that will be the culture that these families raise these kids in. So, Lord, I pray for just an abundance of love and grace as they uh, shepherd their children and as we shepherd their families through life. We love you, God, and are so thankful for this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. Give it up here. All right, that was fun. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open them with me. Res kids, you guys are um, dismissed. A lot of our uh, res kids are out this morning, uh, probably on that Easter candy uh, uh, high. I know Holly and I still get Easter candy from our family, and uh, I gained three pounds this week. <laughs> I even joined the Y and everything, so I don't know what's up with that. Mark 9, verses 42 to 50. You know, I, I love being around kids. Uh, I, I don't know if I've always loved being around kids. I really enjoy, it doesn't mean we're having kids. I'm going to get a million questions about that um, soon. Um, but I love being around them, and um, I love this morning and thinking about it and preparing for it and thinking about why we're doing it. And that was this really fruitful time of study for me. Uh, but even through it all, if you listen closely enough, you can hear um, some rough notes. If you listen closely enough, you can hear that things aren't always as they should be. Even as we go through this service this morning, we all know something. Whether you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian, you sort of intuitively know this thing. You know that things aren't as they should be. Things don't happen as they should. We see things wrong in the world, and we know we will experience so many of them. And these kids, along with their parents, will face fantastic days, but they will face difficult days. They will be hurt by others, and they will hurt others. There will be suffering 
there will be pain. And as beautiful as their lives are and will be, sin will always be crouching at the door. I just want to make sure of something this morning, and that's my only objective uh, for this whole sermon. I want to make sure of this, that these kids and these families won't be raised in a church who thinks sin is something to laugh at. Today's sermon will be short, man. I, we already basically had one in the baby dedication. Um, I speak this morning as one who God has sent to care for your soul. Church, you understand I'm, I'm not sort of just a, a, a teacher that you employ to, to stand before you and, and, and teach doctrine um, every week or to teach the Bible every week, but my call uh, fundamentally is to be a shepherd of your souls, uh, to, to walk with you through life. And the primary way that we can walk together under Christ's rule, the primary way I can um, shepherd you through life is to say, listen, I know the limits of my authority, I know the limits of my ability, so let's together go to God's word. I just believe all of us, myself included, could take sin a lot more seriously. You know, I'm not really interested this morning in solving all the world's problems. Uh, I'm not interested in talking about sin at a metaphysical level. I'm not interested in this morning, at least, in even getting in the weeds of what's sin and what's not sin and all of these different sorts of things. I'm not interested in giving a comprehensive definition of sin based on you know, Old Testament uses of Hebrew words and New Testament uses of Greek words. Here's what I'm interested in in these few minutes of preaching. I'm interested in equipping us to fight sin. I'm interested in equipping us to fight sin. Because the scriptures are clear. If we don't battle sin, we will not grow in our faith. If we do not battle sin, sin will battle us. If we are not fighting, we are losing. And that loss is detrimental, as we'll see in the text, not just to us, but to the world around us. This morning in the text, in just a few verses, I want us to see three things. First, I want us to understand the seriousness of sin. Second, I want us to commit to fight our sin. And third, I hope we leave encouraged to endure hardship for the life of the world. As we look at these things, as we see them, I have sort of a question that I want you to, if you take notes, just to write down and keep in the back of your mind. And I want you to kind of talk about this question uh, in discipleship group. Because a lot of the danger of talking about sin uh, especially on a morning where we're having baby dedications and things are exciting, is things you can think, man, this is just, it's just negative and I'm not interested in that. But I, I want to make the case that it's not negative at all. Because I want to ask this question, what could God do with a congregation of people who view sin the same way he does? What could God do with a group of people, a congregation, who view sin the same way he does. I would argue that perhaps the sky is the limit. In fact, the sky itself isn't even the limit. Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. A nice pleasant image to get it started. 
There are three basic portions of, of the text this morning. The first is just the first verse, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's the first sort of section that stands alone to some degree because it's dealing with your relationship with who? Other people. It deals with your relationship with other people. The second portion runs from verses 43 to 48, so just five verses. And this is where Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for your inner life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for your inner life lame than with two feet be thrown to hell. Finally, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God uh, with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's the next section. Finally, verses 49 and 50 comprise their own sort of thought unit. Verse 49 Verse 49 is precarious. It's a little difficult to interpret, but we'll get there in a moment. For everyone will be salted with fire, verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's look at verse 42 now that we understand sort of the roadmap of of where we're going in the next uh, 15 minutes. Jesus begins the text speaking about how serious sin is. And just before this, uh, what has happened is a group of people have arisen, uh, and the disciples have crossed their paths, and they're doing all these things in Jesus' name. But the disciples aren't familiar with them. The disciples don't know who they are. And so the disciples are going to stop them, and Jesus rebukes them for stopping them. And ultimately, when he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who he's talking about aren't literal children. He's talking about perhaps the less mature believers, the younger believers, the newer believers, the guys that didn't run with the disciples that they had just encountered. He said, if you stop them from doing what I've called them to do, if you cause them to sin, if you do that, it would be better for him, if a great, for you, right, if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you're thrown into the sea. So Jesus is teaching his disciples how to interact with these potentially less mature Christians, these guys who are mentioned in the text just above us that we didn't read this morning. And he reminds the disciples, listen, don't lead these guys away from me. Now, a millstone is sort of just this giant stone that would be used for grinding that a, a person couldn't really move, right? Some um, donkeys or some oxen would, would walk in a circle. You've seen these sort of images in uh, ancient Near Eastern stuff of this ox walking in a circle or a donkey walking in a circle and it, it grinding um, whatever it was that they would um, grind uh, he says it's better off for you that one of these stones that a human can't even really turn would be put around your neck and you'd be tossed in the water than cause someone else to sin. The point Jesus is making isn't that that should actually happen. He's using hyperbole. If we took this literally, we would cease to take it seriously. But I think the hyperbole itself shows us just how serious we must take it. Now, take it. Uh, I'll explain that in just a moment. Jesus is saying, listen, sin is serious. If you get anything else from the passage today, that's it. It's no small thing to lead another into sin. In verse 42, we see that the way we interact with other people has major implications for their life and for ours. So let me just ask you, if you're taking notes or or ask yourself if you um, don't take notes, these questions. Do people leave you with a higher view of Christ or a lower view of Christ? Do people leave you spiritually encouraged or spiritually apathetic? Do people leave you spiritually encouraged or do you leave people, sorry, do you leave people spiritually apathetic or spiritually encouraged? 
Do you leave others understanding that the sin in their life is, is, is detrimental to their spiritual health? It's detrimental to their well-being. It, it is not only that, but it is an affront to the glory of God. Or do you leave people thinking, oh, sin is, is funny, it's cute, it's no big deal. Ultimately, here's the question. Are you building others up in the faith, or are you slowing them down in the faith? Our great lie is to believe that we're staying the same, and we simply are not. The great lie is that we believe we can live in this mushy middle ground where um, all things are sort of uh, hunky-dory, and I do what I want, and I just show up at church, and I don't worry about anything else, and and I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm automatically growing. But the truth is, in the Christian life, we're either growing or we're not growing. And so there is a a sense of urgency in the way we deal with other people. Your interactions today will matter in 10,000 years. I'm guilty of this too, and I'll give you some concrete examples. You know, when you leave me in March, you probably leave me and you know a little bit more about West Virginia basketball than when you first started talking to me. You know, when you leave me, you know, I know a little bit more about, uh, about whatever it may be, and there's all kinds of issues that it may be for you, and that's a good thing to a point. It's a good thing to enjoy sports, enjoy recreation, enjoy food, enjoy um, time with your friends. It's a good thing to enjoy. It's a good thing to share that, but what if you think, man, the only time I really talk to him, it has nothing to do with spiritual things. He never, they never actually encouraged me. We just kind of shoot the breeze, just a couple of good old boys hanging out chatting. Another question, man, I'm asking a lot of questions. This is, I should just let you guys preach the sermon. How intentional are you about the way you lead others to Christ and away from sin? How intentional am I about the conversations I have with the people who are under my pastoral care? How intentional are you with the people in your discipleship group? How intentional are you with the people in the discipleship God's given you, also known as your family? How intentional are you with the people in your missional community? How intentional are you with the people who you sit beside every Sunday? Healthy churches are full of people who take that question seriously. They're full of people who understand that sin's a big deal and Christ is a big deal, and we must be intentional about leading ourselves from sin and to Christ. Verses 43 to 48. Having warned his disciples about leading others to sin, Jesus uses hyperbole once again to make a strong, strong point about how seriously they should take the sin in their own lives. And Jesus, just like any other first century Jew, had really no care for the Platonism of the day. And what I mean by that is this. A lot of the Greeks believed in this, this, this bifurcation of reality. They believed that the spiritual things up here were good. And they believed that the material things down here were bad. And so a lot of the ancient Greeks loved things like humor. Uh, They loved these spiritual and intellectual and philosophical concepts. But they thought your body was keeping you from enlightenment and keeping you from understanding these things. So there was a lot of self-mutilation. There was a lot of um, just talking bad about the body. And the Christian scriptures come, and they don't do that at all. In fact, the Christian scriptures understand us as a lot of something material and a lot of something spiritual. That we aren't primarily spirits or primarily bodies, but we are embodied spirits. That we are full people. And so Jesus isn't saying, your eyes don't matter, gouge them out. He isn't saying, your hands don't matter, cut them off. He isn't saying your feet don't matter, cut them off. In fact, when we understand that the Christian religion has always taken seriously the fact that our bodies matter, 
we can begin to understand just how serious this hyperbole is. God is more important than even the most indispensable things to us. God is more important than even the most indispensable things to us. And being a first century Jew and not having much for philosophy, Jesus just says this, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Concrete imagery about your hand, about your foot, and about your eye. The metaphors of eye, hands, and feet are all inclusive metaphors of what we view, what we do, and where we go. And my question for us this morning, church, is this. Do I take my own sin this seriously? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you in your life. Cripple than two hands go to hell. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Am I willing to get rid of the sorts of things in my life that negatively impact the things I view, the things I do, and the places I go? Do I take my sin that seriously? Do I understand that it must go? And so we have to reckon with a, with a question like, what's it look like to do this? We at FCA, a Fellowship of Christian Athletes at UC on Wednesday, um, I talked about this passage, and I just kind of threw it out there to our students. I said, what, what, what's it like? How do we obey this text? How do we cut off the hand that causes us to sin? How do we gouge out the eye that causes us to sin? How do we um, cut off the foot that causes us to sin? And we worked around that question for, for a good while, and it was a fruitful time. The first thing I think that has to happen, has to happen is this. You have to change your mind about sin. You have to change your mind about sin. I don't know about you, but if I knew I had to cut my hand off, like, I would run from that situation like crazy. I would not want to be anywhere near that. But I think many of us, we don't view sin as something that we run from. We view sin as something we run to. Many of us don't see sin as something that we should run from. We see it as something that we run to. Sin is not something that brings life. It's something that brings death. Sin overpromises and underdelivers every single time. Sin promises you the moon, then gives you a little bit of dirt, and then leaves you coming back for more and believing that promise over and over and over. So what we have to do is understand that when we give in to sin, we're believing a lie about sin, and we're acting on that belief that it's going to give us that thing it promises us. If you do this, you'll get acceptance. If you do this, you'll get fulfillment. And because we want that acceptance and we want that fulfillment, we do the thing sin promises us, and it catches us and ensnares us. And instead of giving it to us, what does it do? It lets us look at it for a second and think we've got it, and then it pulls it back just a little bit further. You'll have that if you do this again. And so we do the same thing again, and we think we're, we're going to get that contentment, that fulfillment, that thing that's promising us, that escape from reality, whatever it may be. And so we reach out to grab it again, and we, we get just a little bit of it, right? And, and, and then he it pulls it back again. And we find ourselves further than we ever intended to go. First, change your mind about sin. Understand its promises are empty and deceitful. Second, I think you have to do this. I think you have to preach Romans 6, 3 to yourself. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life, joy, contentment, peace, all the things that sin will promise us are found in Christ alone. 
Sinning won't get you the things that you ultimately need, but Jesus has done that for you, and our job is to trust him. Third, change your mind about sin. Preach Romans 6, 3 to yourself. Third, surround yourself with God's people and just fight. That's pretty much all you can say. Surround yourself with God's people and just fight. And I don't know if any of you have this in your discipleship groups um, or whenever you are trying to take sin seriously, you'll say, I'm just struggling with fill in the blank. I'm just struggling with the way I, you know, schedule my days. I'm just struggling with the way I this. I'm just struggling with this. One of the reasons we say I'm just struggling with is because we don't want to actually do anything about it. I'm just struggling with this. And really, that's a white flag of surrender more than a battle flag of fighting. I'm just struggling with porn, man. I just am. I can't, can't help it, dude. All right, well, you want to fight? No, nah, I'm just struggling with it. <laughs> Confess your sin to somebody. And this is where I think Christianity is beautiful because it's not complicated at all. Strive to actually stop doing those things. <laughs> Strive to actually fight sin. Believe that God's Spirit is in you, and if you're a Christian, He's empowering you to fight sin. Just fight, man. I thought, when a bitter thought comes your way, say, I'm not going to be bitter, I'm going to give grace, and I'm not going to think about that. You know, stop going out at 2 a.m. and getting yourselves in situations where you're going to be hammered. You're going to wake up and not know where you are, where you've been, what you've done, because you put yourself in a situation. Stop going out then. Stop listening to people who don't take sin seriously. Don't let them drag you down with them. Stop putting yourself in compromising situations with someone who isn't your spouse. Stop lying to your boss. Stop lying at work. Stop being greedy and start being generous. Stop living for others' approval and start living with the approval God's given you. Stop worrying about all your money and your resources resources and your wealth and start being generous with your money and all your wealth. Stop escaping reality with video games and um, drugs or porn or whatever it is you escape reality, Facebook, whatever it is you escape reality with and start living in reality with God. Start healing the wounds that actually drive you to escape instead of pretending they're not there and covering them with a painkiller time and time and time again. Stop wasting time on social media 24-7, building a platform, building a brand for yourself, and start denying yourself and proclaiming the gospel. Stop seeing the worst in every single person and start being charitable with other people. Stop complaining all the time and start finding solutions. Stop causing division and start bringing unity. Stop being rude and start being kind. There's really nothing else to it. Just fight, Christian. How I treat sin proves how seriously I take Christ. That's the bottom. How I treat sin proves, oh, I'm a Christian, man. I, you know, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. It's on my Facebook bio. You'd know that if you saw it. It's just so important to me. I'm a man of my word. I'm a man of the gospel. I'm a good man. Well, if you don't love Jesus and if you're not fighting sin, then no, you're not. A man cannot serve two masters. As a surgeon amputates a limb that endangers the life of the whole person, so too must we remove the sin that threatens to zap the vitality of our spiritual life. Some people might call this radical discipleship, right? I don't think it is at all. I think it's rational discipleship. And why do I think it's rational discipleship? Because of the metaphor Jesus uses. He asks a simple question. He says, is it better for you 
to live your 80 years, which would have been a long time 2,000 years ago. Is it better for you to live your 45 years with one hand or to be in hell forever, which is, which is a better scenario here? The reason, one of the reasons we take sin so lightly is because we focus on the wrong things. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, stop setting your mind on things that are seen. Because things that are seen are what? Temporal. And I want you to ask, how much time do I spend focusing on things that are seen? Money, jobs, all, all these things, whatever they are. They're good things. They're not bad things. Not, not things that we should throw out the window. But how often do those occupy my heart space? How often do those occupy my focus? Jesus beckons us. He says, understand those things and reckon with those things and deal with those things. But focus on these things. Focus on me. Focus on grace. Focus on truth. Focus on beauty. Focus on knowledge. Focus on these sorts of things. And then all those other things will begin to make sense in light of these things. Because if you focus on these earthly things, those spiritual things, guess where you're ever going to think about them? Never. Guess when they're going to come up in your daily life? When crisis hits, usually. Or when things don't go your way. Or when the things you focused on begin to fall through. We are bombarded day in and day out with the world and the issues therein. We are tempted to lose sight of the bigger picture. And sin can become distracting when our perspective is off. Church, I just want to remind you this morning, you're going to live forever. This is what we believe. Look to the things that are unseen. Look to Christ. When we understand life in light of eternity, we are more equipped to do battle with sin. And finally, endure hardship for the life of the world. Verses 49 and 50. Verse 49, this only appears in Mark's gospel. And so Mark and, and, and Peter, who sort of his compatriot in, in, in compiling this, it must have had some sort of special significance to them. A simple sentence that's a little difficult. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Verse 49, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Contextually, here's what I think this should mean, and, and most, most commentators think that this is how we should interpret it. We should interpret that everyone as all believers as all believers. Everyone will be salted with fire. We will go through fire, right? We'll, be, we'll go through trials and temptations and hardships and controversy and drama and physical disease and spiritual disease. And sin. we'll go through all of Like whatever the world can throw at you, like you will go through it. You're not immune from these things. You will walk through discouragement. You may walk through depression. You may walk through all of these different seasons, seasons of losing focus, seasons of focusing on the wrong things. And if you do all that, you're in good company. You're going to go through fire. But the text says, as you go through that fire, you're being salted with fire. You're being salted with fire. So that means that as you're going through the fire, that God's doing something through that that he couldn't have done any other way. That actually he's accomplishing something. He's doing something to you. He's putting some salt on you, if you will, while you walk through that fire. And that's an incredibly beautiful truth. The fire salts us. Rather than consuming us in frustration, rather than consuming us in failure, trials make our walk holy and acceptable to God. 
Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Um, most of the salt in the first century isn't like the table salt that we think of today. Like if you go get um, Morton's table salt, what, NACL or whatever, uh, whatever table salt is, it's pretty purely uh, one thing. Right? You pour it out onto the plate, uh, which we do a lot of here in West Virginia. Um, you pour that salt out on the plate, and uh, you just see salt. That's all there is. There's not any other um, compounds in there. But most salt of the first century came from the Dead Sea, and it wasn't just pure salt that had been refined through a factory refinement process. It contained a lot of impurities, things like carnalite, things like gypsum, two words you didn't think you'd hear at church this morning, carnalite and gypsum. Stuff that looked like salt, but it wasn't salt. Stuff that looked like it would preserve your food, but it wouldn't preserve your food. I think you see where this is going. People who look like Christians, but the true mark of Christianity, which is love for God and love for others, is not in them. I'm sure you've never seen a Christian who looks like a Christian but isn't. Salt is good, the text says, Jesus says, salt is good as long as it preserves, as long as it serves its preservative purpose. Sinclair Ferguson says, unless we maintain the purity of our own lives by plucking out the eye, by cutting off the hand, etc., that causes us to sin, unless we maintain the purity of our own lives and are purified by the flames of testing and remain faithful to Christ, our lives will have no preserving influence on this corrupt world. We must keep our preserving influence on those around us. I want to make the case that if we start looking like the world, we stop being of use to the world. What makes us different is exactly what makes us relevant. Because we bring glad tidings of good news, which is for all people. We have a message for the broken. We have a message for the hurt. We have a message for the marginalized and the oppressed. We have a message that sin is strong, and you have been sinned against, and you have sinned against others. But Jesus is stronger. He loves you, he can heal you, and he intends to use you. A worship team, if you guys would uh, lead us to the table, and we will join you in just a moment. Finally, the text says, be at peace with one another. Now, it's kind of odd that he says, you know, have salt in yourselves, and, um, you know, be, be faithful, be a faithful disciple. And then at the end, he just sort of tacks on this, and be at peace with one another. Why did you do that? Well, because there was an argument that we didn't read this morning between the disciples that launched this whole time of discourse. And that argument was basically this. Who's the man here, right? Who's the best among us? How are we going to, you know, who's the, who's the best of this group? And I, they're jockeying for position, even inside Jesus' inner circle. And here's what Jesus says at the end of it. He gives all this teaching. Man, take sin seriously. Essentially, I think he's telling the disciples, man, you guys need to take the pride that you're dealing with really, really seriously because it's really, really damaging to you. So you need to have salt in you and get along with each other and love each other. Be at peace with one another. Church, these are times... In our world t- today, I don't think they're uniquely bad or uniquely whatever, but I, I do think we live in a day that encourages radicalism, sensationalism, and contentiousness. 
But we must resist those impulses. In a world that teaches us to be contentious and to make hot takes, right, and to assume the worst in another and to just attack people with vitriol, Scripture teaches us to be gentle and to be meek. There might be times where it's okay for a Christian to be a little excited, right? There might be times where it's okay for a Christian to be a little fired up. There might be times where it's okay for a Christian to say, I, man, I, I disagree with you. Like, I, I just disagree with you. Like, I love you, but I disagree. But there is never a time, ever a time, for a Christian to be unkind. Salt is good as long as it serves its preservative purpose. Picture that with me as we head to the table in just a moment. That Jesus says, you are the light of the world, right? A city on a, on a hill. And every week we confess our sin because we understand that we fall woefully short of being that city on a hill. <laughs> we often fall woefully short of being that salt in our families, in our neighborhoods, and among the nations. I want to encourage you today believer to take sin seriously because it certainly takes you seriously and to do battle with sin because our enemy our spiritual enemy is certainly doing battle with you just a couple words for um, any non-believers sin is one of those things that you probably heard a lot about growing up and it was probably defined very poorly and you probably felt turned off by it. And a lot of people will say that sin is a doctrine that, um, you know, really keeps non-believers from embracing Christianity. But I, I, just, I disagree, and I think there's evidence for that. And this is why I disagree. When you hear about a murder, right, where some guy takes a gun and goes into a building and shoots 20-some kids, when you hear about a child, especially on a morning as delicate as this one and as precious as this one, you hear about a child being raped, abducted. There has to be an answer for that. Not only does there have to be an answer for that, but there has to be justice for that. There has to be someone who's more powerful that, than that who can put an end to that. And we all want God to get rid of evil in the world. We all want that. But how much evil do we want to get rid of? Because when I wake up in the mornings and I'm lazy, that's kind of evil, right? <laughs> it's a different kind of evil. But then I look at my brother and I'll envy him. And the seed of sin can start to sprout in my heart. And I can hate another person. And I realize that the evil that's out there, well, it's out there and it's, it's in here. But Christ has made a way for us to reckon with that problem. That he took our sin upon himself and that all evil will be repaid either at the cross of Christ or in hell forever because it deserves eternal judgment. So my, my, my exhortation to you is give your sin to Jesus because he's taking it all and receive the grace that he freely offers. For the way to the sin is death, but the gift of God in Christ Jesus is eternal life. We're about to take the supper, and 
what we do when we take the Lord's Supper is we are proclaiming the, the death and resurrection of our Lord. We're saying Christ has come, Christ has died, and Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We take the body of Christ, just bread. We don't believe it's actually the body of Christ. We take the juice. It represents the blood of Christ. It's not the actual blood of Christ, as we all know. But we commune with God around the table. We commune with our brothers and sisters around the table. And it's the family meal where we say, we belong to this family of faith. Christians have been doing it for 2,000 years, and we'll do it until the Lord returns. And then we'll sit down with him around the table and take it with him once. So if you're here and you're not a believer, um, our scriptures teach that you wouldn't want to go to the table anyways because you, you don't proclaim that Christ's death did anything, right? So logically it wouldn't make sense for you. So we ask you not to partake of the table, but um, feel free to walk back by the table. Feel free to look at the elements. Feel free to stay seated. We all go at different times, so um, you don't feel like you're being singled out in the room for not being a Christian or anything like that. So let me pray for us. And then after that, I'll dismiss you to, to take the Lord's Supper. And then we'll gather and sing and be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is a trumpet sound that breaks through the night of our soul and wakes us up to see reality as it is. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place, to take the punishment of our sin that we deserved that we may be free to fight sin, knowing that you have secured our victory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may now uh, approach the table to partake of the body of Christ, broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. We'll reconvene in just a moment.